Alright folks, I'm going to read from this book today. It's called Horsepower by Juliet Clutton Brock. Alright. <clears throat> I'm going to read the introduction. The role of horsepower in the evolution of ancient civilizations. The earliest evidence for the horse being in some way a part of human culture comes from the cave paintings of the Magdalenian phase of the Upper Paleolithic in France and Spain. For the greater part of the long period since these works of art were painted, about 15,000 years ago, wild equids were hunted right across the northern hemisphere to provide meat and hides for human populations that were that were steadily increasing in numbers. Overhunting combined with climatic change took its toll and the herds of wild horses began to dwindle. Equids were extinct in North America by 10,000 years ago and in Europe they were gradually pu pushed eastwards into Central Asia where the last few Zawalski's horses survived into this century. <clears throat> By 9,000 years ago, the increasing aridity, aridity of the climate in Western Asia, together with increasing pressure on the available supplies of wild plants and animals by expanding human populations, most probably provided the impetus for new ways of of obtaining food. People began to cultivate cereals and to domesticate goats, sheep, and rather later cattle and pigs. At this period, as can be deduced from the absence of their remains in the fossil record, there were no wild horses in the region of Western Asia where the domestication of livestock first took place. <clears throat> There were wild asses, but perhaps because they were more difficult to restrain and to handle as herd animals than goats, sheep, or cattle, asses were not included in the first wave of domestication about 9,000 years ago, and equids never became primary sources of meat. By asses, it means donkeys. <laughs> Just in case someone doesn't know. <clears throat> okay. It is not until around 6,000 years ago that the remains of the earliest domestic horses are found on archaeological sites in the Ukraine, with a few scattered record, with a few scattered records from early sites as far west as central Germany. Hmm. At the same period, the earliest domestic donkeys begin to appear on wall paintings and in burials from Egypt and Western Asia. Perhaps throughout prehistory, these equids were occasionally tamed and ridden, but there is no archaeological or osteological evidence for Kipling's explanation about their domestication by hunting people before the emergence of agriculture, as described in this famous, famous Just So Stories. When the man and the dog came back from hunting, the man said, What is Wild Horse doing here? 
And the woman said, His name is not Wild Horse anymore, but the first servant, because he will carry us from place to place for always and always and always. Ride on his back when you go hunting. <clears throat> right. Until very recently, archaeologists held the view that there was no evidence for the riding of the earliest domestic horses or asses. It was believed to be more probable that equids were laden with goods or harnessed to sledges, and later to wheeled carts and chariots, with riding being a very rare event, as discussed in chapters 4 and 6. I will have to say that maybe a lot of the things in this book might be outdated, because this was what published in... This was published in 1992, and there's been a lot of, lots of new uh, findings when it comes to all this horse history, so, <clears throat> anyways, continuing, um, however, horses cannot be moved about in any numbers without a mounted herdsmen, so there is an inherent probability that they must have been ridden from the beginnings of domestication. I don't know, sometimes some of these conclusions they come to are very, uh, I don't know, it, does, it doesn't, I don't think it's that simple. Anyways, human burials associated with the remains of asses and pieces of harness have been excavated from Sumerian sites in ancient Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, a country between rivers now called Iraq, dated to around 4,500 years ago. Isn't that interesting how Ukraine has been mentioned, Iraq has been mentioned, all these places are getting fucked. Isn't that interesting? Okay, um... <clears throat> um now called Iraq, dated to around 4,500 4, years ago. A model of a wheel found in Bikova in Bulgaria may date from as long ago as 5,500 years. But there is no proof that the, that the draft animal at this early period was the horse, for it seems certain that oxen preceded equids for traction. Evidence for the early domestication of horses and asses comes from a large number of sources, as apart from the excavation of equid bodes from settlement sites, an extraordinarily large number of burials over several millennia and in many countries have been discovered which contain complete equid skeletons, harness, and wheeled vehicles. Yeah. All this shit, guess where they found in addition, there are often models of horses and vehicles in graves, which range in grandeur from house from those in the recently discovered tomb of the first emperor of China at Xi'an to a small pottery model of a wagon from Syria. <clears throat> Do you know how fucking long Chinese history is, man? Then there are pictographs and cuneiform texts from Mesopotamia, Assyrian stone relief, reliefs, wall paintings, and hieroglyphs from ancient Egypt, 
You see how short they mention China when they have the largest amount of evidence? Anyways, Assyrian stone reliefs, wall paintings, and hieroglyphs from ancient Egypt as well as innumerable Celtic symbols. But perhaps most impressive of all is the treasure from the frozen tombs of the Scythians at Pazirik and from more recent excavations in southern Guess where? Siberia. 7th to 4th centuries BC. Of gold jewelry, often figuring, offer, often figuring horses. Embroidered felt saddles and elaborate harness. I'm telling you, we probably all came out of Lake Baikal. In, well, the, the, the northern people. And the southern people probably came out of Africa, which... Everyone agrees. <clears throat> By the first millennium BC, the world was opened up to the horse rider. Or maybe we all came out of Africa and then something happened. We got separated in all these different locations for a while before we got to meet up again. Who knows? I think, like, we just probably all started in different locations. Because the Earth's climate and temperature and all this shit was was uh, allowed life to come, so maybe we all just start off in different locations. Anyways, by the first millennium BC, the world was opened up to the horse rider who could travel for the first time at a speed that far sur surpassed that of the ox cart. Or even of humans when running their fastest. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great on his horse, Bucephalus. It's interesting, the, 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 the word Bucephalus is spelled B-U-C-E and phallus. Hmm. Conquered 2 million square miles of the ancient world. He learned his horsemanship from the Scythians and from the writings of Xenophon. A lot of people think the Scythians could have just been the, the Tartars or the Mongolians. <clears throat> Anyways. From this, time, from this time onwards, the horse became of in increasing importance in the art of war. Surpassing the stirrup was unknown until the first centuries. Sorry, surprisingly, the stirrup was unknown until the first centuries AD, and neither the Greek nor the Roman cavalry rode with stirrups. They had flying horses, man. And that was a different type of horse. <laughs> Once the use of stirrups became widespread, mounted soldiers could wield the lance and bowmen could shoot from the saddle with very little training. This meant that protective armor for the soldier and his horse increased in complexity and weight, which in turn required the breeding of much larger horses. By medieval times, the heavy horse was beginning to appear and was taking over from cattle for plowing and traction in northern Europe. This period can be justly called the age of the horse. Radical changes came about not only because the use of the stirrup spread 
but also because of the invention of the horse collar, which meant that horses could pull loads with greater efficiency, and the introduction of the nailed horseshoe, which came into universal use in the 11th century. The nailed horseshoe. Hmm. Alexa Menos worships his god. Look it up. <clears throat> Alexa Menos worships his god. The arts of warfare and hunting, chivalry, and indeed the whole structure of feudal society in the Middle Ages was built on the horse, a knight's tail. There are no knights without horses. <laughs> built on the horse, and the distances covered by travelers were enormous. Armies of mounted knights from northern Europe were able to travel through the whole of Europe to the Levant, where Jerusalem was captured from the Muslims during the First Crusade in 1099. So apparently I heard the Crusades was not in Jerusalem, but it was basically in China. The Crusades were in China, where they basically went and just stole a bunch of shit. That's what I heard. In Asia, during the same period, Genghis Khan, with a cavalry of more than 30,000 men, each with two horses, broke through the Great Wall of China and then conquered all the lands from Korea to the Caspian Sea, creating a vast empire which survived for three fucking generations. From the end of the Middle Ages, until mechanical power began to replace horsepower in 18th century Europe. The horse continued to be the essential pivot of civilization, providing the means of long-distance transport, agriculture, industry, and warfare. I'm telling you, we'll probably all go back to riding horses again, because that's how we did it. That's how we got to where we are. That's It's much uh, friendlier for the environment. It's... I mean, <clears throat> just saying, we are organic creatures. Alright. Essential pivot, blah, blah. The politics of nations were swayed by battles won by the great soldiers, from Cromwell to Napoleon, who all depended for success on the strength of their cavalry. The point is neatly made by the 17th century nursery jingle. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. The domestic donkey is slower than the horse, and being descended from the wild ass of the hot deserts of Africa and Arabia, is also somewhat less viable in temperate regions of the world than the horse. Throughout history, the donkey has fulfilled the role of pack animal for the trader and farmer in the Mediterranean regions, but perhaps most importantly, the donkey has been sired to the mule. <clears throat> Mules became an essential means of transport in the ancient world and remained so until the building of the railways. The Sumerians, 4,000 years ago, may have been the first to breed hybrids between the domestic donkey, 
descended from the African wild ass, Ecus africanus, and the wild Asiatic ass, Ecus hemionus. Later, it was found that even stronger hy hybrids could be obtained by breeding a male donkey with a female horse, and this became the accustom accustomed method for producing the most powerful and resilient baggage animals for peace and war. Male donkey with a female horse. <laughs> most powerful and resilient baggage animals. In this book on the horse published in 18 in his book on the horse published in 1891 Sir William Flower wrote It is only in very recent times that the progress of mechanical invention has begun has begun to supersede some of the uses for which the strength and speed of the horse for many thousands of years have alone been available How far this commencing disestablishment of the horse from its unique position as the main agent by which man and his possessions have been carried and drawn all over the face of the earth will go it is difficult to say at present <clears throat> that was in 1891 a hundred years later it can be said that there are very few places in the world where the horse has not been superseded by mechanical transport it is therefore hard to comprehend today the enormous importance of the horse in the development of almost all the great civilizations of the world. Jesus H. Christ was a horse. Okay, perhaps the most poignant relic of the age of the horse <clears throat> can be found in the term horsepower, which is still used to calculate the power of an engine. I mean, Ferrari's logo is a fucking horse, man. Come on. It is a measure of the drawing power of a horse, and according to the International System of Units, one horsepower, HP, is equivalent to 746 watts, and one metric horsepower to 736 watts. <clears throat> the term dates from the beginning of the 19th century, when horses were in widespread use as providers of power to engines and machines, for example, for grinding, spinning, and furnace blowing. This is this is why I also think Samson could have been based off of a horse. Because when the Philistines had captured him, <clears throat> they put him in the windmill to go and... What was the thing? Spinning, grinding, furnace blowing. I think... I think it's crazy, man. Like, they have... They used to use horses down in coal mines these horses never fucking saw light they got to maybe if they were lucky they got brought up back into the to the to the to the outside plato's cave was a fucking horse <clears throat> anyways the term dates from the beginning of the 19th century when horses were in widespread use as provide okay i read that according to tan T A N N 1983. One horsepower could crush 32 bushels of malt per hour in a brewery. However, steam soon steam soon took over the production of power in industry and transport, and so the long and often cruel servitude of the horse began to diminish. I mean, there's there's this one. Um, <clears throat> 
documentary or video, I forget, but it was like, it was a old, very old uh, video footage of of this person saying, well, why would I, why would I uh, leave my horse for one of these metal vehicles, which doesn't love me back or which I can't love, it's like, uh, which I don't have a connection with, and it made me think of, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen, but it made me think of, uh, uh, was it Ripley's Believe It or Not, one of those shows where this dude, in other other videos too, where you have these guys who basically make love to their cars, <clears throat> just made me, uh, <laughs> and also, just look up donkey sex, man. Donkey sex. People, till now, still fuck donkeys. Alright. The next thing I wanted to read was... Was... Horses and asses in the Old Testament. Page 92. Alright. Horses and asses in the Old Testament. The horse. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He poweth, poweth in the valley, and rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet an arm. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear, and is not afraid, affrighted. <clears throat> Neither turneth he back from the sword. The quiver rattleth against him, the glittering spear and the shield. He swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage. Neither believeth he that neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He said among the trumpets, Ha ha, and he smelleth the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Job thirty nine nineteen to twenty five. The main reference, the main references to the horse as well as to other animals in the Bible were collated by Tristram. Isn't that interesting? Tristram, that's mentioned in Diablo. Were collated by Tristram, 1889, who was not only an erudite canon of the Church of England, but also a naturalist with a wide knowledge of the fauna and flora of Palestine in the last century. Isn't that interesting? Of Palestine. Huh. He noted that throughout the Old Testament, the horse is almost always described in connection with armies and battles, as in the above quotation. It is only very occasionally that the horse is mentioned in an agricultural context, which was the preserve of the ass. Tristram, 
Tristram g- gives four different Hebrew words for the horse, the most common being sous, S-O-O-S, meaning, drumroll, a chariot horse. Hmm, chariot horse. <clears throat> then there is a, then there is resesh, R-E-C-E-S-H, a swift or high-bred horse, although this word may also have meant a dromedary, as in, and he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by posts on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and, and young dromedaries. Esther 8.10 Okay, Ramak means a mare, and parash means a horseman, cavalry horse, or riding horse in contrast to a chariot horse, as in, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12 fucking thousand horsemen. Like uh, Lord of the Rings, the <clears throat> riders of, um, oh my god. The, the writers of anyways you know the fucking king with all the horses and stuff in, in Lord of the Rings yeah okay uh, let me see the first mention of the horse in the bible is when Joseph saved the people of Egypt from the great famine described in Genesis and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses. He exchanged bread for horses. That is a fucking steal, man. From this time onward, throughout the second and first millennia BC, the period of horse the period of history covered by the Old Testament, the chariot horse played an integral part in the endless wars fought between the peoples of Western Asia. And Jesus said he'll be sitting on the right hand of God. Yeah, Jesus was a horse. He was on the right side of the chariot. The The rider of the chariot was fucking God. If you look up October horse sacrifice in Rome, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's all the, all the symbols, signs are there. And then you look up Alex, Alexa Menos worships his God, where Jesus... And this is believed to be the first depiction of Jesus ever in a picture. He is portrayed as a horse. As a horse on a fucking cross. If you look up horse sacrifice and shamanism, you will still find pictures of shamans sacrificing horses up in Siberia and stuff. I mean, come on, people. Come on. It's... it's the Lord in the Bible is just Lord Buddha. They just took all these stories and just just fucking made a fucking man. Stories are for Sunday school children. We need adults. Okay. Um from this time onward throughout the second and first millennium BC Okay, people who of Western Asia. Also, another fact I would like to mention is that Israel is part of Asia. 
The Israelites came to depend on a supply of horses and chariots from Egypt to defend themselves against Syria and the Assyrians, a policy which was denounced by the prophets. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. <clears throat> Isaiah 31.1 Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses flesh and their horses flesh and not spirit. Isaiah thirty one three. This was the period during which iron was coming increasingly into use throughout Europe and Asia, and the consequent improvements in the design of chariots is noted in And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove and he drave out inhabitants of the mountain but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. The chariots were not, of course, made entirely of iron, and that was meant that the iron tires were nailed into the wooden wheels. Okay, if you say so. The Domestic Ass <clears throat> Trist Tristram, 1889, commented that the ass is frequently mentioned in scripture as being ridden by persons of wealth and quality as indeed it is to the present day in the east okay um where the horse provided the means of transport in war the domestic ass provided it in peace and on the farm Women and children are frequently recorded as riding on an ass, as in, And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. White asses were particularly favored and owned by persons of high rank, as shown by Deborah in her exhortation to the judges. Speak ye that ride on white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. Judges 5.10 In the famous wall painting from Beni Hassan in Egypt, a, Sem a Semite is shown with his white ass. To own a large number of asses conferred high status as for the judge Abdon. And after him Abdon the son of Hillel, a Pirathonite, judged Israel, and he had forty sons and thirty nephews that rode on three score and ten ass colts. He judged Israel eighty years. Judges 12, 13-14 The ass was commonly used for plowing, the oxen likewise and the young asses that ear till the ground shall eat clean provender which hath been winnowed with the shovel and with the fan. Isaiah 30:24. It was however forbidden forbidden to yoke the axe, sorry. To yoke the ox and the axe ass. <laughs> Let me read this. Again. It was however forbidden to yoke the ox and the ass together. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Deuteronomy 22:10. The mule Tristram, Tristram, 1889, gives the Hebrew words pered and perda for the mule and assumes that this was the hybrid donkey and horse, but 
it is possible that the onager and donkey was also sometimes inferred. Onager is another type of uh, equid, I believe. Mules had a high status in Old Testament writings, as shown in the first book of Kings, where Solomon was described as riding in state on a mule when he was declared king. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there king over Israel. And blow ye with the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. <clears throat> I don't know, that sounds like something the British would say. God save the Queen. I mean, they were... They did, fi they did fi found Calcutta in India as a town to sell all these horses, because after steam and coal and all this shit came about they had all these horses that they, they didn't need no more so they found all these different ways to get rid of all these horses that's how horse racing started and and all this shit in, in Calcutta, India it's crazy if you look up <clears throat> the history of that anyways the mule was also used as a baggage animal but it seems probable that the Israelites at least in the early period were forbidden to breed mules, for as Tristram notes, it was a law of Moses that thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Leviticus 19.19 19. It's just interesting that there's a lot of this uh, not mixing, trying to protect this anyways. The whole thing with white, whiteness, and preserving the whiteness, not letting it mix with other colors. This is a very, very universal theme across modern day history. Where the writers, the writers of this history usually tend to be white in color. The Onager. References to the Pere. P-E-R-E, -E, in the Old Testament have been translated as wild ass. Girls gone wild. But it is the onager, Ecus Hemionus, that is being described. Perhaps the most evocative passage has been quoted on page 38, but many other allusions to the wild and untamable nature of the onager show the respect in which nature was held in the ancient world. A wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? Jeremiah 2.24 So I'm saying metaphors and animals and humans and animal farm and boxer the horse and Jesus H. Christ. Yeah, because we're all livestock. The Bible is about animal husbandry. <laughs> man, you have no idea what the Bible is about, man. Okay. <clears throat> Trist Tristram, 1889, noted that there are two references in Job 39 and 5 and in Daniel 521 to the Hebrew A-Rod. 
A R O A R O D, which is also translated as wild ass. And he questions whether it is the African wild ass, Ecus Africanus, that is here intended. If so, it would be lend if so it would lend support to evidence from the archaeozoological record for a small number of equid bones from early prehistoric sites in Arabia has been identified as Ecus Africanus. Alright. Next what do I want to read? Oh yeah, the the next thing I wanted to read was I mean there's a lot of stuff in here that's very interesting. But um let's see, we're at thirty six. Okay, let's do page one thirty three. Alright, let's do this one. Genghis Khan and the Mongol Hordes Thirty years before the Battle of Arsuf, Genghis Khan, the most powerful nomad and one of the, one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen, was born in a tent on the banks of the river Onon in Mongolia. He was named Temujin after a Tartar chieftain who was defeated in battle by the baby's father, the Mongol Emperor Yesukai. Isn't that interesting? Yesukai. Yesu. Yesu. J in, 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 in English, that turns to Jesus. Yeshua. Jesus fucking Christ. Yesukai. <laughs> Just before the birth of in 1162. Temujin was 13 years old when his father died. His mother, Yulun, was determined not to let go of the throne, so Temujin was surrounded by unceasing warfare amongst the rival nomadic tribes until in 1206, at the age of 44, he proclaimed himself ruler of the empire and adopted the name of Genghis Khan, which in Chinese means ruler of all. Why does that mean ruler of all in Chinese? That's interesting. He conquered northern China in 12... Okay, so that's why. He conquered northern China in 1215 and then advanced westwards, always on horseback <clears throat> and with appropriate pomp and ceremony, as evidenced by the rather uncomfortable-looking saddle which carved ivory pommel that he is supposed to have owned. The world of Genghis Khan became a nomad empire which extended from the Mediterranean to the Pacific. It was based on the tribal loyalties of pastoralists and nomadic horsemen who, being reared in the saddle, had little experience of urban civilizations, but were unified and manipulated by the remarkable organizing ability of their single leader, the Khan. I mean, even even the word past, pastoralist, pastor, I mean, it's got to do with livestock and sheep and animals. And they just took all that language and symbolism and applied it to humans and called it religion because religion is a state 
idea. A state is a city with walls. Four walls. Jesus left the 99 to go find the one. <clears throat> States produce religion. Nature produces spiritualism. Shamanism. All this nature stuff. State produces religion. It takes all these stories and beliefs and adventures from uh, people who live out in nature and then just apply it to animal form inside the city walls. Because we are livestock. You have no fucking free will. You have an ID and a number and they know everything about you, motherfucker. They got all our fucking DNA now too, thanks to all these COVID tests. They know everything about us. And we carry tracking devices for them in our pockets. The world of Genghis Khan. Okay, I read that. The socioeconomics of the Mongolian nomads and their relationships with the sedentary societies of Central Asia in the Middle Ages have been discussed by Kazanov. That these nomadic herdsmen, through their warrior elite, could subjugate settled states over such a huge area was indeed a unique event in history. Also, another person I heard put it like this. He said, It was almost like Mother Nature sent Genghis Khan and his hordes and his descendants throughout, throughout the air quotation, civilized, developed parts of the world to basically kill them all off. And in doing so, he prevented global uh, climate catastrophe. He prevented it, apparently. That's one way of looking at that history. I just thought it was interesting. Because compared to right now, I'm just saying. Okay. <clears throat> History seems to have a pattern. That's all I'm saying. And we just happen to be the ants on the surfboard, surfing on the crest of the wave. And all we can do is observe what happens. <laughs> Anyways. That these nomadic herdsmen through their warrior elite... Cause, okay. The aristocratic warriors have been compared to the feudal lords of medieval Europe. Yeah, exactly. But Kazanov contends that there was little similarity in their methods of taxation and social control. Yeah, the Mongols were way more uh, tolerant. They let people worship whatever religion they wanted to. Worship whatever god. Okay. The story of Genghis Khan and his four sons isn't that interesting. Four sons, hmm, just like the four Gospels, is one of unrivaled military success due in great part to the supreme training of their horsemen. <clears throat> the four horsemen, the four horses of Revelation. Hmm. The Mongol hordes quickly earned a reputation for the ruthless slaughter of all their enemies which was probably a major contribution towards their seeming invincibility. Yeah, the more dum-dums you leave alive, the more problems they 
create later on. It's very basic war strategy. It's just like <clears throat> it's like anyways. It is basically like the verse where Jesus says you gotta separate the chaff from the wheat. Is 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 the, the, the saying uh needle in a haystack, how do you find it? You fucking burn the whole barn down. One of the few instances of mercy shown by Genghis Khan was to the Turk Jalaladin, who made a daring escape from a battle on the banks of the river Indus. Look at this shit. He came all the way to the river Indus? When all was lost, Jalaladin seized a fresh horse and jumped into the river 20 feet below and was watched by the admiring gaze of Genghis Khan as he emerged on the opposite bank dripping wet but unharmed. When all was lost, Jalaluddin seized a fresh horse and jumped into the river 20 feet below. Okay, I see. Jesus walked on water. <laughs> the descendants <clears throat> of Genghis Khan were less ruthless and his son Ogade, according to Kazanov, understood the aphorism of the ancient Chinese orator Lucia, 3rd to 2nd century BC, who declaimed, Although you inherited the Chinese empire on horseback, you cannot rule it from that position. Lots of uh, horse, uh, horse imagery or metaphor in language also. Okay, uh, <clears throat> let me see. Now we all know about Marco Polo. His stuff is interesting too. The next thing I wanted to read was uh, the history of horse racing, the Roman chariot race. One sixty-eight. Okay. I mean that's crazy man the the they ha they have they they would keep books of the lineage of these horses to make sure their blood was pure sounds like the gospels okay the roman chariot race the four horse chariot hmm hmm the four horse chariot the gospels <laughs> or quadriga played an essential role in the Roman circuses, where all races were run while other athletics, animal spectacles, baiting, and competitive sports took place in the amphitheaters and stadia. They were, the stadia is also a, a term of measurement in the Bible. And, and the something-something was this high stadia. It's like, hmm, <clears throat> comes from... Roman chariot race terminology. The circus was an oblong or oval enclosure with rising tiers of seats around it. Every major every major city had at least one and every major city had at least one and Rome had five 
with the huge Circus Maximus being the largest. We've all watched Gladiator, so we uh, can have an idea of, of these arenas. The arena of this circus, which according to Pliny could hold 260,000 spectators, was 2,150 feet long by 725 feet wide and it, and it had a central spine around which the horses had to turn of 770 feet length. Each, each chariot race was normally seven laps which meant according to Highland that the horses galloped a distance of about three miles. <clears throat> See, this is what happens. After the war, after the chaos, during times of peace, you gotta keep all these monkeys entertained. This is what they did. I mean, if you look at sports nowadays, I think sports all began as hunting. And then once we became, air quotes, civilized, we had to uh, find different ways to... to... how, do, how would I put this? exorcise all that energy among the citizens so this is how he did it okay uh, let me see three miles the surface of the air arena was made of compacted sand as with the Greek chariots the two central horses were harnessed to the pole and the two and the two and the two outer horses were attached by traces the chariot driver stood on a simple box between the two wheels and must have needed a very great skill to manage the horses and to turn them, turn them sharply around the spine in the center of the arena. The startling line was painted white. There was often a system of startling stalls or carceries which were operated with a system of levers so that they all opened at once. The rituals of the chariot race were just as elaborate <clears throat> as those of the modern horse race. The charioteers of Rome were divided into four factions, companies, which, whose drivers competed against each other, as mentioned by Pliny in his Natural History, book number 7, written during the 1st century AD. Each faction was distinguished by a different color, and dedicated to a season of the year. Look at that. Look at that. There was green for spring, red for summer, blue for autumn, and white for winter. Behold, a pale white horse. We all get all our fucking symbols, meaning, image, all this bullshit we all get from nature, man. Because we all came from shamanism. We all fucking came from... I mean, everything you have around you comes from nature. So, even your own food comes from nature. So, where the fuck did you come from, genius? Nature. There are remarkably... There are remarkably detailed records of the chariot races and their drivers. Highland quotes the Latin inscription about the charioteer... Diocles in the mid-2nd century AD, from the age of 18 in AD 122, for a period of 24 years, 
Diocles drove 4,257 races with 14 with 1, with 1,462 wins. His best races were for the Red Faction, but like all charioteers, most of whom were slaves, Diocles passed from faction to faction. Ownership of the horses was under the control of the factions and was established by branding. <clears throat> Man, everything we have. Just, it's just been remixed, man. The great popularity of the chariot races throughout the Roman Empire meant that there was a constant demand for horses which caused a depletion in the supply available for the cavalry. This, together with the sometimes extremely unruly behavior of the spectator, spectators, led to there being much pressure on the state to control the sport. The chariot horses were nearly always stallions, whose training began when they were three years old, but they were not raced in the circus until they were five years old. Although the four-horse chariot seems to have been the most popular for racing, there are also records of two-horse chariots and of races with mounted jockeys. As in the modern era of horse racing, and the fastest horses seem to have been those presumably of Arabian or Barb confirmation that were imported to Rome by ship from North Africa. <clears throat> well, let me read um, this last part to end. To end with Man, I could read. <sighs> no, I'm just going to read the conclusion. Alright. The family Equidae is unusual amongst mammals in that all the species of horse, ass, onager, and zebra can be interbred and will produce hybrid offspring that are physically normal, although all although almost always infertile. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Different species interbreeding. Okay. <laughs> Most taxonomists now include all the equids in one genus, Ecus. Ecus. Genesis Ecus is a car from Korea. Ecus and cytogenetic studies indicate that although there were although there are wide variations in the chromosome numbers, the genetic distances between the different species are low. Despite this tax taxonomic congruity and behavioral similarities between the species, only two wild equids have been domesticated. These are the horse Ecus ferus from the grasslands of northern Eurasia, and the ass, which, which evolved in the hot deserts of North, North Africa and Arabia. <clears throat> so look, if, if there's another book called um, Horses, History of Horses, Language, and the Wheel is all connected. So 
if all these horses came from Eurasia, then don't you think? I mean, even now, everyone, even now, all the, at least to me, from my research, all the evidence points back to Central Asia is where we all began from. And even even these people are uh, conclusions. They're saying these horses and asses m must have originated from this area. I mean, if if come on, man. Okay, domestication of these two equids has led to their diffusion thousands of miles from their natural species boundaries and into environments which would appear to be totally unsuitable for their natural adaptations. The transformation of the wild ass, a true desert animal, into the short-legged, long-coated donkey living in the damp fields of Ireland, more than a thousand miles north of its natural range, must be one of the most remarkable examples of evolution within a domestic species. It's not evolution, motherfucker, it's just adaptation. Over generations, we adapt to our environment. It is a notable fact that despite thousands of years of environmental interference and interbreeding with domestic stock, neither Sewalski's horse, which is closely related to the ancestor of the domestic horse, nor the wild African ass, progenitor of the donkey, has yet become extinct. This is especially remarkable in the light of the extermination of the wild progenitor of domestic cattle, the aurochs, both primigenius, which appears to have been more widespread and more adaptable than the horse in the in the early Holocene of the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, so these auric bulls, if you look up their pictures, I think Yahweh was one of these auric bulls. <clears throat> when the Israelites had left Egypt and Moses had gone up to the mountain to talk to God, <laughs> What were the fucktards doing on the on the on the ground? They built a golden calf, which was an auric bull, I think, because that's what they worshipped. All right, the Przalski horse, Equus ferus Przalski, has been extinct in the wild since the 1960s, but has bred well in captivity. That's basically humans. That's basically an example of humans right there. Bred in captivity. Okay, in 1991, an area of land in the Gobi Altai was designated as a World Heritage Site where captive-bred captive horses will be set free in their country of origin. <laughs> For the first 10 years of this project, organized by the Pro by the Zawalski Horse Global Management Plan Working Group. Ten captive-bred stallions and eight mares will be kept in a fenced area of 10,000 hectares. Also, the Song of Solomons, I think, is talking about horses. When the population has grown to a viable number, the horses will be allowed to roam freely over the Mongolian steppes as until the middle of this century they had done for a million years the Mongolian steppes. <clears throat> also, horses have huge hearts compared to humans. Huge hearts. 
No wonder women love horses, man. They love him. Women love Jesus. Because he was a horse. Big ass heart. He had a big heart. Okay. There may be a few wild asses surviving in the Eastern Sahara, and there is a small breeding group in a wildlife reserve in Israel, as well as a few in zoos around the world. That the wild horse and wild ass have survived until the present is probably due to the ability of these equids to retreat into hardship zones where the human population is in very low numbers. Yeah, basically wherever humans are, animals stay away from that area. Because humans just fucking devour everything. Okay. <clears throat> However, other species of equid have been exterminated by merciless hunting. For example, the now extinct quagga, which Harris described in 1839 as still found within the Cape Colony, inhabits the open plains south of the Vaal River in immense herds. In Asia, there was a tradition of running down wild onagers with relays of horses, which lasted from the time of Xenophon to that of Teget Mayer and Sutherland. The Mesopotamian onager was hunted throughout history, but like the quagga, it only became extinct at the end of the last century. Humans, man, we fucking kill everything, even even if we don't eat it. We kill it for sport. We're retarded, man. We are we are a retarded species of fucking retards on this planet, and Mother Earth is gonna fucking kill us all off, man, because we're useless. We are useless matter. And she's going to kill us all. Since the beginnings... Okay, where was I? Last century, the wild horse and ass should have a special value not only for conservationists of wildlife, but also for the breeders of livestock. For these equids provide a store of ancestral genetic material from which all the domestic breeds have been developed by natural and artificial selection and which, once lost, can never be recovered. Never say never. Since the beginnings of their domestication, the horse and the donkey have, in one important respect, nearly always been perceived as different from other livestock. They are treated as individual animals rather than as part of a herd or a flock. Like a dog, a horse or a donkey is a partner and therefore not to be killed merely for food. Apparently horse meat is very good for you. It is only when the animal loses this individuality that it can be regarded as a supplier of meat, as dogs are in China or horses in France. Hmm. You know, the 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 Siberian or the really up north where it's cold as fuck, they used they used to eat dogs, the Siberian huskies, because I mean you gotta eat something, and if nothing grows up there, <laughs> that's that's basically what humans have done for for a very long time. They would send out their livestock animals out into nature, and these animals would go eat the plants and stuff that humans could not. And they would come back, and the humans would eat these animals. And that's how we have survived for this long. And this is why they used to respect these animals, because these animals gave humans 
life. Literally, we ate these fucking animals. Jesus said, this is... What did Jesus say? This is my blood. This is my flesh. What do you think it means, man? What the fuck do you think it means, man? Come on. <clears throat> the special place held by the horse in human societies for at least the past 4,000 years is reflected in the numerous sacrificial burials of horses that are found on archaeological sites throughout the ancient world. These sacrifices reached a peak of elaborate ritual in the tombs of the Scythian nomads, whose culture was centered on the horse during the first millennium BC. Life in the next world could not be contemplated without material possessions, and these included large numbers of horses, which were sacrificed and buried with their splendid trappings. Leviticus 3.16 All the fat is the Lord's. Life in the... Okay. The worlds of the gods differed little from the living world, as vividly described by Homer some hundreds of years before the period of the elaborate Scythian tombs. There is a wide cave deep down in the water, halfway between Tenedos and rocky Imbros. There Poseidon, the earth shaker, reigned in his horses unyoked them from the chariot and tossed immortal fodder down for them to eat and he put golden hobbles round their feet which could not be broken or slipped so they should wait there unmoving for the return of their master that was from the Iliad 1335 this sounds very interesting. There is a white cave deep down in the water, halfway between. There Poseidon the Earth Shaker. Sounded like a volcano. Reined in his horses. Unyoked them from the... Ch okay, it was not only the Scythians who sacrificed horses on a grand scale. For all over the Celtic... For all over the Celtic world... The horse appears to have been treated as worthy of divine attention. In Germany, Eastern Gaul, and Britain, uh, representations of the goddess Epona have been found in which she is shown either riding a horse or with horses on either side of her. In Norway, sacred horses were kept in the sanctuary of the goddess Freyr at Trondheim and is and in the sagas there the and in the sagas there are descriptions of horses kept near Freyr's Freyr's temples in Iceland belief was widespread that sacred horses could understand the will of the gods and also that a horse could carry a dead hero into the next world The movie Spirit, <laughs> the, the 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 cartoon movie Spirit, yeah. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The horse was swimming. Jesus walked on water. Jesus was standing on top of the horse that was swimming. 
across the lake, what? Or was Jesus the horse? <laughs> All right. All right. Throughout history in the world of the living, the horse has always been a powerful symbol both for fertility and for warfare. Since ancient Egyptian times, paintings and sculptures have been made of individual horses, while in literature, literature, <laughs> the horse has been used to boost the image of the warrior and hero, and never more eloquently than by Shakespeare. I saw young Harry with his beaver on, with his beaver on, his cushions on his thighs, gallantly armed, rise from the ground like feathered mercury, and vaulted with such ease into his seat, as if an angel dropped down from the clouds to turn and wind a fiery pegasus, and witch the world with noble horsemanship. <clears throat> This is shamanism, man. Shakespeare was a fucking poet shaman, man. He's talking about fiery pegasus. This is this is shamanism. Or the horse itself may be extolled as an ethereal being that will protect the rider, as in the dauphin's speech before the battle of Agincourt in Henry the Five and Henry the <clears throat> Fifth. Le cheval volant, the Pegasus, qui allait narine de four. Sorry, I, I don't speak French though. When I bestride him, I soar. I am a hawk. He trots the air. The earth sings when he touches it. The bassest horn of his hoof is more musical than the pipe of Hermes. This is fucking shamanism, man. God damn, the, the horse is the drum. Shamans call the, their drums the horse. It's the horse that their mind travels on. Interjection by Orleans. He's of the color of the nutmeg and of the heat of ginger. It is a beast for Perseus. He is pure air and fire. And the dull elements of earth and water never appear in him but only in patient stillness while his rider mounts him. He is indeed a horse. It could be a shaman on a horse playing his drum while he's riding. <laughs> in their attitudes to their animals, humans have always been a confused... Sorry. In their attitudes to their animals, humans have always been as confused as they are in any other relationship. Mixing compassion with cruelty and altruism with commercial greed. Great numbers of horses reared either in preparation for their sacred journey into the next world or for warfare <clears throat> presumably were presumably always well fed and cared for. Wonder if Hansel and Gretel were horses. <coughs> or Jack and Jill went up the, up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Were they horses? Okay. Um, even greater numbers of ordinary horses, donkeys, and mules that were excused for draft and travel in the ancient world, as in more recent times, had short lives, during which they were subjected to starvation and unbearable hardship. Yeah, even Don Quixote talks about horses.
For good and bad, the horse, donkey, and mule have been companions to humans in every walk of life. Even the Bible has stories of Balaam and his donkey when the donkey spoke up to him. When the donkey said, when the donkey spoke back, it said the Lord allowed the donkey to speak back to Balaam. Come on, people. Until the machine age, their services were required for almost every endeavor. And in many of these, the horse has been an unwitting accomplice in the destruction of the natural world and the needless slaughter of untold numbers of wild animals. If you, if you, if you just look at a human riding a horse, you can symbolically view it as the horse is the, the heart and the human is the mind. Yes, the mind can you know, domesticate the horse and whatnot to do its will. But, the heart is what carries this dumbass mind that sits on top of it thinking it's the ruler of the world. I mean, Superman got his spine broken riding a horse. A fall always comes before pride. Come on, people. <clears throat> You get kicked by a horse, you dead, bitch. You get you get brain injury, bitch. Okay. Um, not least in this destruction must be counted the depopulation in Australia and the Americas of the Aboriginal inhabitants who had lived in balance with their environments for many thousands of years before the European invasions. That's what I'm saying, man. Like, it's, it's not just me, but everyone's starting to wake up to the fact that... I'm not going to say anything, man. Like, we all know what's going on. Everyone can see what's going on, man. The devastating effects of the discovery of the new world were in great part brought about by the ability of the invaders in the beginning to travel fast on horseback and later to transport heavy loads by mule train. As reviewed by Zubro, the rapid spread of European diseases resulted in the decimation of the Native Americans, probably as much from collapse of the socio-political systems of tribal groups as much as from the actual epidemics. It is time for the realization that there was no discovery of a new world, only the invasion of two continents that had their own long-established indigenous human cultures. Without the horse and without pack animals, this invasion could not have succeeded. Today, in this decade of the 500th anniversary of the landing of Christopher Columbus in 1492, there is a great need for a wider understanding of the richness of past cultures. An even greater need is for a new world strategy for the conservation of all life on earth and the suppression of cruelty to both humans and animals. It's not to both humans and animals, genius. It's animals. Period. Humans are fucking animals. That's it. Who can talk. And we think we're smarter. Even animals can communicate with each other. We are all animals. Humans, air quote humans, are just animals who got 
brainwashed into thinking there are bananas in heaven by Yuval Noah Harari. Bananas in heaven. Peace.